everyone. Today we are pleased to welcome Edwin Hodge, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And we are going to talk about post-truth politics. But first of all, Edwin, uh, can you tell us a word about your research? Extremism, far-right activism, Star Trek? Sure. So, uh, so I, I study a fairly broad range uh, of topics, but uh, in, in this context, the, the research that I, I'm, I'm working on is I'm examining uh, uh, political and social extremism in, on the North American far right. Uh, so my, my research primarily looks at uh, conspiratorial movements, that is groups like QAnon, um, but also I look at uh, extremist groups like um, sort of more traditional white supremacist organizations, uh, ethno-nationalist groups, uh, anti-immigration groups, anti-government uh, paramilitary groups, um, that sort of thing. So basically, I study the very, very outer edge uh, of, the, of the North American far right. Okay, very interesting. And um, about this uh, post-truth politics, uh, uh, in uh, in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries proclaimed post-truth as the buzzword of the year. Um, this expression in this dictionary means uh, relating to circumstances in which objective facts have less influence on the formation of opinion than the appeal to emotions and personal beliefs. Uh, what do you think about this this term, this terminology, and and what this what does it serve to describe? I actually think that that definition doesn't go far enough. Um, in in my research, sort of in, in 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 the things that I've looked at, post truth politics doesn't just mean appeals to emotion or appeals to opinion. That's common. Uh, that that's a, that that has been a a mainstay of not just political discourse, but of discourse period. Uh, Post-truth politics in North America, to me, uh, this describes the, the erosion, not of, you know, it, it's not about favoring opinion over fact. It's about the annihilation of truth as a concept. Um, if you take a look, the most obvious example, of course, is, is Kellyanne Conway. Uh, way back in, in early 2017, uh, positing that the White House that under the Trump administration was operating under a set of alternative facts. There, there are, of course, no alternative facts. There are facts and there are not facts. Alternative facts is a, is a, a sort of a, uh, an interesting kind of newspeak uh, to mean we'll just generate positions based on a new kind of truth, uh, a truth that it doesn't really relate. It relates less to objective, observable, empirical reality, and more to the way the world should, the way the world, the way we think the world should run. So, post-truth, in my view, isn't just about uh, appeals to emotion. It's about the systematic deconstruction of of sort of consensus, a, a reality-based consensus. Um, this is how you end up with things like climate deniers who the, the, the objective truth, the empirical truth is that the world is, is, is warming. 
that humans are the primary driver of this and we need radical change in order to stop it uh, or even to, 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 to slow the damage. Uh, and their response is, now we'll just invent a whole new ecosystem of think tanks and lobby groups that will peddle a different kind of fact, um, a fact that isn't in fact factual. Yes, and and uh, if we if we link uh, this post-truth politics with uh, with the concept and uh, the institution of democracy of North American democracy, um, how can democracy and democracies, uh, the institutions and also the concept, could defend themselves against these threats, against this this strong and strange movement? I mean, that's the, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Democratic institutions, uh, especially in, in, in the global north, uh, the way that we've developed them over the past century or so, democratic institutions rely on, on bureaucracies, right? On bureaucratic institutions, which are themselves reliant on a kind of reality-based consensus, right? Um, policy is derived from empirical observation, from empirical research. It's colored, it's, it's, you know, filtered through ideology, but at the, at its, at its foundation, there is at least some observable truth that we can see some observable facts. Um, in this more sort of post-truth world, uh, what we've seen, if we take, if we take the Trump administration as our example of a post-truth democracy, hmm. you know, we take a look at a Trump era America, we can see pretty quickly that democratic institutions don't fare well. Um, the Trump administration overtly politicized virtually every department down to things like um, housing and human services, right? Um, down to the Environmental Protection uh, Agency. These were all politicized because the Trump administration, right, and, and the politicians that supported it simply didn't care what what truth is. They didn't care what, what, what the empirical facts were. When they were, when they replaced, you know, when, when the Trump administration replaced these officials with sort of Trump appointed, you know, hacks for lack of a better term, um, we saw pretty quickly how, how easily those democratic institutions were eroded. And I know that there's a lot of American politicians now and a lot of, a lot of people now who, who look at the the Biden administration and go, oh yeah, see, our our, demo, our, our democracy survived. I I'm I am less confident in that claim than perhaps they would like me to be. And that's perfect transition uh, about um, this Capitol event one month ago. Uh, what do you think uh, about this this event? I, I think that's trying to find a silver lining in 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 an otherwise horrific. Uh, day. Um, claiming that democracy is strong because it survived an insurrection ignores the fact that the insurrection was allowed to happen in the first place. Um, strong, stable democracies don't have armed insurrections, right? That's kind of the definition of a stable democracy. So the fact that the United States experienced one, and now after the fact says, oh, well, see, it didn't destroy our country. Well, that's a pretty low bar. 
that's a that's a pretty low bar, and and it's not one that I would say, oh well, okay, I I agree with you. You have a healthy democracy. Um, let's take a look at the at the immediate aftermath. It is an empirical, observable fact that Trump supporters on the far right, allied or with the tacit endorsement of sitting members of the American Congress, stormed their Capitol buildings, destroyed property, killed people, and were actively seeking, they were actively hunting members, sitting members of Congress. Right? That is an empirical fact, right? Those are the facts as we saw, we saw it un unfold. We didn't even need a news agency to tell us this because the insurrectionists were live streaming themselves. We know this happened. In a strong and healthy democracy, what would be the outcome? Well, we would see massive charges, right? And we have seen that in the United States. We would also see accountability. The people who spurred this on would be held to account. That hasn't happened. Right. It is again, it is not controversial to say that Donald Trump egged them on. Right. He straight up told them to march on the Capitol. Right. As Mike Pence, as as insurrectionists were hunting for Mike Pence, right, to hang him. Donald Trump was tweeting that Mike Pence was a coward for not doing what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. What needed to be done in Trump's view? Literally overthrow the democratic process. Elected officials supported the insurrectionists yeah, that a, seems like a textbook definition of or textbook example of treason and yet they're still sitting in in the house of reps donald trump's impeachment went nowhere not because the facts failed to condemn him but because his own party is so terrified of his base that they supported him they are they they engaged in in their sycophants right these are not the signs of a healthy democracy. These are all of the hallmarks of a deeply troubled democracy. And I think that Americans, uh, I, I honestly think Americans need to sit down and have a real discussion with themselves about what's going on. My worry is that they not only won't, but can't have that discussion. And um, this, this, uh, this, uh conclusion you have about uh, this uh, United States democracy, uh, what are the, the effects? Because in Canada, you are the first neighbor with Mexico. And what are the influences of this strong movement of post-truth politics with this example of Trump, as you described? Uh, what could Canada do? Uh, what is the situation in Canada? What, what, what could you share with us? I mean, as much as as in Canada, it's a standard. It's a standard sort of belief in Canada, a standard hobby, if you will, of the Canadian population, to uh, to to compare ourselves to the Americans, um, and and to to sort of we like to see ourselves as 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 morally superior uh, to Americans in a lot of ways. Uh, it's so much so, in fact, that uh, that that in the mid 20th century, uh, American diplomats often rather you know with frustration would often uh, uh, refer to Canada as the stern stepsister or stern stepdaughter of God. Uh, the idea was that uh, Canada was sort of uh, saw itself as the moral voice or the conscience of, of America right 
so we, we have this long tradition in Canada of, of feeling ourselves to be to be morally uh, uh, superior to the Americans. But the truth is that we have conservative politicians in Canada who are adopting the same strategies as the Americans. Right? We are seeing post-truth politics creeping in from the edges of our own of our own uh, political discourse. Um, we, you know, QAnon, right, this conspiratorial extremist pro-Trump movement has active membership in Canada. Virtually every anti-mask rally, virtually every quote-unquote pro-freedom rally uh, that we've seen in the pandemic and the COVID era has had QAnon signs, right? This is Canada. And yet we have Trumpists. We have, you know, we have QAnon believers. We have the infiltration of our law enforcement and our uh, defense apparatus, our, our military, by conspiratorial extremists, by white supremacists, right? We, we have these patterns and these social movements, the movements that, I mean, should be stuck in America, right? They should be centered in America and concerned with America. I mean, these are pro-Trump movements, and yet we've got them in Canada. Right. We we've seen it. We and it's not even just we saw. We've seen it in the last few months. We saw it during the leadership, uh, during the last conservative leadership rallies. Right, Kelly Leach, uh, um, you know her her platform, uh, um, Maxime Bernier, uh, his platform. These are the, the the a lot of their planks were conspiratorial, um, or or indeed post truth. So we we have these influences in Canada. Thank you, Edwin, for this comment. Uh, and it, it makes me think about your, uh, one of your field of research. It was um, about the um, um, a territoriality network of far-right activism. Uh, it's completely linked with the, the technology of the platform of communication. Uh, and for the last 10 years, uh, with our phones in our pockets, uh, we are completely uh, uh, li directly linked to the, to the discourse and narratives of, uh, of the post-truth politics, but of course, uh, about a lot of different uh, sources of influence. So what's your, uh, what's your opinion? What's you, what, what are you thinking about the, this huge transformation, technological transformation, uh, and the link with this post-truth movement and the territoriality of, of this network of far-right activism. Yeah, the, the advent of, of social media has really sort of changed the landscape of knowledge production and transmission. Um, back in the day, Right back, you know, in the, the 20th century, even the early 21st century, um, national borders could, in some small way, um, they could uh, slow or impact the flow of, of information, uh, because, you know, ideas had to flow across these borders, usually attached to bodies. Um, as as technology changes, right, radio, television, it becomes easier and easier for, for uh, transborder networks of sort of transborder communication networks to emerge. But the advent of social media has, has added something completely different. And that is the emergence of, of a territorial digital spaces. 
these are communities that exist online that um, they they have no foundation in a in a country. In fact, even the idea that the servers that these communities are being hosted on, you know, that they're in in one country. Well, we're rapidly moving towards cloud-based computing, meaning that that these networks form uh, not they're, they're not attached to a server farm somewhere. They are sort of floating networks that are made up of all of the computers that are connected to them. Um, we you know we see this everywhere. So these networks have no have no they have no territory but they have a cultural space that that ignores national boundaries and in those spaces people you know can spend their entire lives right somebody who lives in canada they might buy their groceries here they don't have to they could buy them through amazon and get them shipped across the border if that's what they wanted to do but they buy their groceries here they sleep here sure they pay their taxes here but their income is earned from etsy or some online store their friends are all around the world and they communicate in real time through Discord, through uh, social media sites, through, uh, you know, th through the dark net. They, they can communicate in ways that can't be monitored, right? They are uh, encrypted on both ends. You can't see what they're talking about. Um, they can live their entire lives, uh, their entire, the entirety of their social lives, um, completely ignoring the geophysical location that they're in. So these, these networks that are spreading information are also spreading conspiratorial beliefs. And, and we can see that pretty clearly. Um, we, can, we can watch uh, the spread of, of these kinds of, of movements in real time in our own social media feeds. It's, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. And uh, you couple that, the ease of transmission with the isolation brought on by COVID uh, and health, the public health orders, you've got the perfect recipe for millions and millions of people to fall down these rabbit holes, right? These, these cons into these conspiratorial and extremist spaces. And uh, this spread uh, we have uh, in Europe, uh, in Europe, uh, they have also uh, uh, populist movements and a lot of people are eurosceptics so this movement of uh, Eurosepticism is uh, more and more higher. And what lessons and what light can European countries draw from these situations faced with this rise of populism and conspiracism? And yeah, I mean, Europe's got its it's got its work cut out for it. I mean, so Euroscepticism has been kicking around since the the old coal and steel community, right? The Franco-German coal and steel pacts, right? It's been around for, for as long as, as, as the EU has been an idea. Um, but what we've seen is that uh, Euroscepticism, it, it utilized exactly the same social media networks uh, in, in, in Britain, in France and Germany, uh, on the sort of the edges of, of Europe, uh, it, it utilized the same networks uh, that the alt right uh, and QAnon uses in North America, uh, to great effect. Like, I mean, Brexit was so much of the Leave movement in Brexit was based on lies, right? It was based on on like bald faced misinformation and lies, um, but it spread like wildfire, um, and. Uh, and what, what's what's especially frustrating is is that in North America, 
we were able to watch that happen. Um, and rather than take lessons from it in North America, we just assumed that it wouldn't happen here maybe. Uh, and, and then when it did, we, act, we acted surprised like, oh, how could this have happened? Well, all you had to do was watch the BNP and, and, and the, the, the Brexit campaign in, in, in Europe to, to see just how easily these networks uh, move. We, we've also seen uh, not just Eurosceptic networks, uh, but we've seen uh, uh, the emergence of far-right groups in Spain, France, Italy, Germany, uh, the UK, and they are building networks amongst, not just amongst themselves, but between, you know, between countries as well. Um, the, I think that Europe needs to, they need to really consider how they're approaching um, this, you know, the, the, the challenge of countering extremist ideologies. Uh, if, if they are not, if their strategies are not truly in, like, you know, European, right? If, there are, if, it's, if there's a German approach and a French approach, if they're not truly European. And if they're not recognizing the central role that uh, these largely unregulated uh, social media networks have in the spread of this information, um, they're, they're hamstringing their efforts before they, are, before they even start. What are the responsibilities of this social media network? Uh, we know Facebook has created uh, its Supreme Court. Uh, we know uh, Twitter and they have their own uh, charter of, uh, of obligations. They should be more responsible, accountable, no? What do you think about that? Well, the question of should um, is an ideological one, right? Um, I think Facebook and Twitter Uh, these are uh, and these these are sort of uh, prime examples of the kind of of Silicon Valley libertarianism uh, that 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 has you know that sort of culture that dominates uh, the the big technology companies. Um, they don't see themselves as having any moral culpability in any of this, right? They're a platform. They are there to provide a service. Uh, they are not there to regulate. Um, But the problem, of course, with that is the internet isn't a, the internet and, and increasingly these sort of social media networks, it's harder to see them as like sort of mom and pop type internet service providers or, or whatever. Uh, they are more like utilities. Um, they are increasingly necessary uh, for, for, for people to, to communicate, to find work to do their jobs. Um, and, and if we see them as utilities, um, then I, I think maybe, you know, maybe countries ought to consider regulating them like, like utilities. Um, in Canada, we have the, the CRTC, right? That is the, that's a regulatory board that governs uh, what we, what you see and hear on radio and television in Canada. Um, and they've only just really begun in the last few years to, to take up the issue of regulating uh, what, what you find in digital spaces. Um, because they've been so hands-off for, for so long. Um, so, I mean, the, the question is, is, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. What should tech companies do? My, my personal opinion is they need to step up. They need to recognize, really recognize their, their position in, in our cultural landscape, not just as money-making machines, but as curators 
uh, of information. Uh, and if they want to hold that position, right, as, as, a, as, as a sort of a facilitator of communication, they, they need to take on the responsibilities that, that, that come along with that, I think. You spoke about this uh, libertarian philosophy. Uh, and behind the Bitcoin, behind the virtual uh, cryptocurrencies, we have this idea of also of decentralized money, of mm -hmm. uh, A-state money, uh, like uh, the money of the people directly without the, the state and without the central banks and whatnot. Um, how could how could we think how could we link this all these trends bitcoin virtual uh, cryptocurrencies libertarian uh, movement and the conspiracies movement technology movements all all are linked in one in one huge trend and where where are we going with with uh, if we could speculate a little bit about the 10 next years uh, I mean, this is this is a, a really really challenging question. Uh, I often tend to avoid sort of futurist uh, speculations. <laughs> In my view, uh, if we're not if we're not striving towards uh, Star Trek, we're we're doing it wrong. But um, but you know, looking at cryptocurrencies, who's who are the big players in that? Well. I mean, you get people online who will say, oh, I'm just a small time guy. I just did some some bit mining and I, you know, I've, I made a bunch of money. But if you take a look at who's holding most of the funds, it's states, right? The, the single biggest Bitcoin wallet, I believe, is China, right? Like, so the, the cryptocurrencies, this idea that they're somehow going to, that, that somehow like corporations or governments are going to keep their hands off wealth generation mechanisms, Get real. I mean, like, seriously, get real. That is, that, that's absurd. Um, so we're going, I think we're going to see increased state penetration of these, of these sort of decentralized, stateless, uh, these, these kinds of cryptocurrencies. It's only a matter of time. You think about who has the money, who has the resources to buy up crypto, who has the, who has the resources to, to acquire. It's not, it's not Redditors, right, on Wall Street bets. Right, it's not, it's not, it's not the redditors in Bitcoin, uh, in the Bitcoin subreddit. It's state actors, right, who are able to to monopolize, right, to be able to marshal their power, to buy. Um, and if it's completely uh, unregulated, there is literally nothing to stop them. So I see a lot of these movements as efforts to get out from under the thumb of the state. But the problem I think with a lot of these movements is they don't actually understand what the state is. I don't think they recognize the full extent of state power. I don't think that they fully understand uh, the ramifications. So, you know, these, these, these sort of digital cowboys creating hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in, in wealth uh, through cryptocurrencies, um, but still believing somehow that the government isn't going to try to get in that game. I mean, have they, have they talked to, 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 to elected officials ever? Yeah. Have, <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I see. I see that the. I see that the role of this, I, in a kind of ironic way, um, a lot of these hyper capitalist, hyper sort of libertarian uh, uh, um, uh, impulses by um, by these big companies and by like crypto and this sort of thing, I think are, are going to almost inevitably uh, generate a state level response because I don't think states are going away. I, th I think that they're just going to have to adapt. 
Uh, Edwin, to conclude this interview, um, what political message of hope can you share with uh, our listeners? Uh, I don't know, some tools uh, in order to, to defend our democracy, if we think democracy is one of the best example of how we could live all together in peace. With, of course, nothing is perfect, but what's your political message what, uh, of hope? Uh, could you share with us, please? If you are interested in saving democracy, you have to do something. There is no saving anything without action. You need to vote. You need to organize. You need to, uh, you need to take control of the levers of power. Um, you might not believe in, 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 in a state. You might be cynical and believe that the, you know, the state doesn't represent you. The state will represent you whether you want it to or not. Apathy is surrender. Uh, to, to these kinds of movements, because guess what? These movements, in addition to being extremist and conspiratorial and, and fringe and, and post-truth, they're also doing a better job of organizing than their opponents are. So, so the, all the tools that they're using, activists can use as well. They can use those tools to counter what's what they're seeing. They can uh, they can use social media networks to spread ideas about skepticism, about uh, critical thinking. Um, they can disrupt uh, these these networks. They can you know by by um, infiltrating them with with their with with counter information by by employing new strategies. Right. Um, Half of these movements got started as trolls, as troll, uh, sort of trolling, right? A lot of like QAnon, a lot of these guys were trolls when they started. So counter troll them, right? That, that's worked before. It disrupts these networks for as, as quickly as these networks spread bad information, they are quite fragile. The idea is hard to beat. The idea, the, the ideas they've been kicking around. Fascism, we, we, we fought a war, you know, 60 million people died. Uh, we fought a war to defeat fascism. It's still here. Um, but the networks broke. And they they reform every now and then. And we break them again. And they reform again and we break them again. We can do the same with these. We just have to, we have to think, we have to be smarter. Right? We have to, we have to adapt our tactics, our strategies to these new environments because they did. And that's what gave them that that initial head start. To, to build and grow the way they have. It will be the last word of our interview. Thank you very much, Edwin Hodge. Thank My you pleasure. very much.